Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Not much action today in the stock markets on this Friday before a three-day Memorial Day holiday weekend. The action was really in the oil markets, uh, the bond markets, and the foreign exchange markets. The biggest move happening in crude oil, crude down just over $3 a barrel today. One of the biggest declines I've seen in some time. We're back down to 67.5. Earlier in the week, we almost hit $73 a barrel uh, for crude. And here we are now, 67.50. A pretty big drop today. We were down yesterday also. The uh, rumors today were that I think Russia and Saudi Arabia may be upping their production, and it was that news that sent the market falling. But remember, markets don't move in a straight line. You get a lot of speculators that get into the market, and generally, you know, they're not, you know, there for the long run. They're there to catch a trend, and they're there to ride it as long as they can. They tend to put stop orders in beneath the market. In the case of oil, if you're long, you'll have a sell stop, and many of those stops likely got triggered today. You probably had some people trying to minimize their exposure. Either they uh, you know, limited their loss to the extent that they got in recently and they got stopped out with a loss, or maybe they've been long for a while and they've been moving their stops higher to protect their profits, and, and now they got stopped out of the trade. Uh, but I think this is more technical noise. I don't think this uptrend in the price of oil has changed based on this pullback from 73 now to 67 and a half. And, you know, maybe we've got a little bit more downside, but if you look at the chart, uh, you can barely see the decline, the uptrend that's really been in place, the more recent uptrend that goes back uh, to July. Uh, You look at this uptrend and it is perfectly holding. We're not even down to the line yet. We still have a little bit to fall before we hit that line. So I'm still bullish on oil. The opposite happening uh, in the bond market. We had a significant rise in bond prices today. Uh, Bonds rose uh, yesterday as well. The yield now on the 10-year is back down to 2.93. You know, we got to 3.14, I think, about the high. And we've had a pullback, but it's not a, a coincidence that both yields and oil prices are falling at the same time because they rose at the same time, which also makes sense. If inflation is driving up oil prices, inflation should also be driving up interest rates. And that's exactly what we've been experiencing in these markets. And just as I think the upward trend in oil is intact, I think the upward trend in interest rates is intact, meaning the downward trend in bond prices is intact. And so I expect this too to reverse. And I think these are opportunities 
for the traders who are on the right side of this trend uh, to maybe increase their positions or buy back in if they took profits at higher levels. So when it comes to oil, right, you're buying the dip in the bond market, you're selling the rip. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the trends are going to continue. Another trend that is continuing, which I believe is a counter trend, and I've talked about this, is the rise in the dollar. The dollar now closing, a dollar index closing this week above 94. This is the uh, first close above 94, you know, since we closed below it on the way down, I think. You know, back in March, the week of my birthday, the dollar index closed below 90. We had an 89 handle on the dollar index, and here it is about two months later, not even quite, and now we're above 94. Uh, I think, though, the dollar is going to run into some resistance. Uh, I thought it might have already happened. Maybe it's going to go a little higher. But to me, the primary trend is down. We are in a bear market. The bear market started uh, in January of last year. But there's always corrections in any market, whether it's bull or bear. In this case, if I'm right, if this is early in uh, a dollar bear, this is uh, one of the first corrections, the correction being the up move and it is sowing the seeds of its own destruction, uh, money is going to start to come back out of the dollar for the same reason it was going out of the dollar uh, all along. And I think the, you know, the renewed uh, optimism about the Fed hiking rates, I think will soon give way to the new reality that they're almost finished raising rates, and they're not going to be able to raise rates nearly as much as the markets once believed, and of course, it's not going to be long before they're reversing the hikes and replacing them with cuts. And it's not going to be long before all this talk about shrinking the balance sheet gives way to the next expansion of the balance sheet. But I don't think it's going to be that easy. I don't think that you're going to be able to let all that happen and then sell the dollar. I think you're going to have to have the brains to figure it out in advance. And I think the market's going to discount these things happening before uh, they actually happen making it much easier for people to do the trade. Of course, the weakness in uh, currencies, particularly the emerging market currencies, uh, is being accompanied by weakness in the cryptocurrencies, continued weakness. Bitcoin, as I am recording this, is around 74.40, 74.50. It's continuing to edge down. I think the lowest I saw it over the last day or two was around 7,200, 7,250. But I think for the week, Bitcoin, and of course, a lot of other cryptocurrencies too are included in this, but Bitcoin has probably lost more value this week than any of the emerging market currencies. I don't know, maybe the Turkish Lira edged it out. I'm not really sure. Uh, but, you know, it's got to be the cryptocurrencies did not do what they are marketed to do. This is when they're supposed to shine, right? If you're in an emerging market and your currency is going down, you're supposed to buy the cryptos as a hedge, right? But that's not happening. I mean, maybe somebody did buy Bitcoin as a hedge, but the hedge didn't work out, right? If somebody sold their fiat currency on Monday and bought into Bitcoin, they jumped out of the frying pan into the fire because chances are the Bitcoin went down by more than the currency that they were worried about. And you also, you didn't get any other buying coming. You didn't get a bunch of people anticipating that people would want to buy cryptocurrencies as a hedge uh, and, and just start to buy it to speculate on more people buying it for a hedge. None of that happened. That happened years ago 
uh, early on when Bitcoin was just gathering momentum and the fact that Bitcoin rallied when there was problems in the currency markets was part of the story that this is the role that it was going to play in the future. But now here we are in the future and it's not playing that role. Bitcoin is weaker uh, than most currencies. And for that reason, I believe it's going to continue to weaken. You know, we are holding this support, you know, around 7,000. I think, again, if we break below it, maybe 6,000 is the next round number. Uh, But below that, there's a lot of air. I mean, we could certainly move substantially lower than there and maybe uh, in a big way, in a quick way. What's interesting about this decline that we've had is that there hasn't been any big panic. It's just been a slow uh, meltdown, right? And there's been plenty of rallies along the way, uh, but they sell into every rally. And it's just a slow erosion of the price of Bitcoin. And nobody's worried. Nobody cares. Nobody is pointing out the fact that Bitcoin should be rallying right now, given what's going on in the Forex markets. And it is not. And that is telling a rather significant story. Another interesting story that is developing or developed this week, I think it's going to go nowhere, but we'll see, is Donald Trump now talking about tariffs on imported automobiles. I think he's talking about maybe 25% tariffs. And of course, this is not really aimed at China. We don't buy a lot of Chinese uh, automobiles in the United States. It's mainly probably uh, Japan and the Eurozone, uh, where a lot of cars are coming. I mean, uh, there are other Asian countries, too, that we we import a lot of automobiles from. So this would be a big deal. And plus, you know, there are a lot of uh, U.S. manufacturers of cars and even, you know, foreign manufacturers that have plants down south that are manufacturing cars in the United States. But a lot of the uh, components, a lot of the parts have to be imported. And so the tariffs would not just be on, you know, finished automobiles, but on automobile parts. So if you're assembling an automobile in America using American workers, but you are assembling parts that have been imported, well, the cost of importing those parts is going to go up by by the amount of the tariff. Now, the reason I don't think that these tariffs are actually going to happen is because the short-term impact of the tariffs would be negative. I mean, it would be negative, I guess, on the economy. It would certainly be negative for anybody who has to buy a car. Um, It it may be helpful to the used car market, right? If you've got to sell a used car that is not subject to the tariff, I mean, you know, that may be a benefit there. You know, and of course, there is a problem right now. A lot of cars are coming off lease. I mentioned this in prior podcasts. I mean, you got a Mercedes that somebody leased, and now it's coming off lease, and uh, their used car value is underwater, to the extent that they slap a tariff on a new car, uh, then that may make the used car have a little bit more value because now there might be more demand for the used car as people don't want to buy the new car because it has the tariff. If they buy one that's only a few years old, it doesn't have a lot of miles. Now, all of a sudden, that's a more attractive alternative. So that could kind of help out that market as well. Although if you need any new parts for that car, if something happens to it and you got to buy a part, well, obviously... Uh, the parts are going to be more expensive. That might assume that you know it's no longer under warranty and you're and you're paying for the parts. But overall, the immediate effect of tariffs would be to raise the cost of cars, and you know that is not going to bode well, I don't think, uh, politically. So I don't think the tariffs are going to happen. Now, of course, you know the other aspect of the tariff is that it does raise some revenue 
for the government. And, you know, the government needs revenue. I mean, if you're going to justify all the expenditures, right, we're spending a lot of money. I would prefer that we not spend this money. So my preference is that we cut government spending. But if we are going to agree that we're going to spend, you know, $5 trillion, we've got to raise that much in taxes. So to the extent that the government decides to have tariffs, they are taxes and they will raise some money. And so by having a tariff, uh, the budget deficits will be smaller than they would be without the tariff. And the question is, what does more damage to the economy, the deficits or the tariffs, right? Because they both do damage. I mean, personally, I would think that the deficits would actually do more damage, but that damage is more long-term, right? The more immediate damage is probably the taxes, right? Because, you know, we have some immediate benefit to the economy of the tax cuts, right? Long-term, we're going to have, you know, uh, problems. The tax cuts are going to be a net negative because they they led to bigger deficits, which in the long run are a bigger problem for the economy than the tax cuts are a solution. But the same thing would apply if we uh, if we had tariffs. Plus also, just because the government puts a tariff on something doesn't mean it's going to get the revenue. Because if the government has a tariff on an imported car, it only collects the tariff if the car is imported. So if a car comes into the country and an American buys it, then he's going to pay the tax, right? And the government's going to collect the money. But if the tariff simply makes the U.S. car so expensive that the American customer doesn't buy it, if he buys a domestic car instead, right? then uh, the money goes to the car manufacturer. The government doesn't get anything. Now, the car manufacturer maybe makes a sale that he might not otherwise have made, right? Because the person would have preferred the foreign car, but he bought the U.S. car instead. And that is partially the goal of the tariff. But that transaction doesn't, doesn't benefit the U.S. government. I mean, maybe it does if it leads to more employment in the U.S. And now maybe somebody who might otherwise be unemployed is employed and, and paying taxes. But of course, a lot of times what might happen is the guy might just buy a used foreign car instead of buying a new import or a new domestic car. There are a lot of ways that tariffs can impact uh, people's decisions. But of course, if the domestic car is manufactured using some foreign made parts, then those parts had to be imported. And so therefore, the price of the domestic car was higher and the government did collect some of it in the form of higher taxes because of the uh, the tariffs on the parts. But overall, is it a good thing to layer the economy with more taxes? No. I mean, it's better uh, than layering it with more debt. But what's better is to layer it with neither. Don't have the taxes or the debt. Cut government spending. Eliminate agencies and departments. Cut entitlements. That's what would deliver real uh long-term gain and short-term gain for a lot of people, right? The people who got lower taxes would certainly get an immediate benefit uh, from a reduction in government taxes that was accompanied by a reduction in government spending. But the immediate losses are to the recipients of that spending. And that is the problem politically because the recipients of that spending are generally cohesive political groups and they are going to crucify whoever takes away uh, their government check, which is why government checks are rarely, if ever, taken away. I mean, even uh, politicians who are opposed to giving out government money and who maybe vote against these programs, once the programs are enacted, they never vote to cut them. Because it's one thing to vote against giving 
something to somebody that they don't already have. Because if you don't have it, I mean, you don't fight as hard. But once you have something, right, once somebody has a government benefit, it is very difficult to vote to remove it because then you really vilify the people who are doing that. Because, you know, let's assume somebody is getting a welfare check and now there's a vote to reduce it. The, the political spin is, oh, this guy wants to take money away from the poor, right? Well, you're not taking it away from the poor. You're just not giving it to them, but it's able to be described as a taking, right? You're taking from the poor. And why are you taking from the poor? To give to the rich, right? But you're not giving anything to the rich. You're just not taking as much from the rich. So it's one thing to oppose a welfare program, right? Because they're the poor don't have anything, and you're talking about actually taking from the rich and giving to the poor. But when you're trying to reverse a government program, now the spin is you're taking from the poor and you're giving to the rich, and nobody is going to support that. It's one thing to be, hey, I'm against taxes, and I don't think we should tax wealthy people more, right, to give money to somebody. But nobody is going to say, I'm in favor of taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich. And that is the way the left is always able to cast uh, the elimination of a program, which is why they're never eliminated, right? Which is why all the Republicans or a lot of them were opposed to Medicare and Medicaid when they were first brought up. None of them are opposed to it now. There are a lot of Republicans who are opposed to Social Security when it, when it was first introduced. They're not opposed to it now. That's why all of a sudden all these Republicans who are opposed to Obamacare don't want to get rid of it, right? I mean, every time there's a government program, it's here forever, right? I forget who said uh, that uh, nothing has a, a, a nothing lives as long as a temporary government program, right? Because you know they, we got programs that were temporary wartime programs for the, uh, the the first world war, second world war, even earlier than that. You know these the, 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 these temporary programs never go away because no one has the political guts to take them away. So the bottom line is, I don't think these these tariffs are going to happen, and they're they're not going to help. They're not going to make uh, the U.S. economy more competitive. Uh, they're not going to result in a reduction in our trade deficits. I mean, there are policies that ultimately would do that, but none of these policies are the ones that anybody is is considering. And look, I would like to see uh, the federal government run more on tariffs or on a national sales tax. I mean, let's abolish the income tax completely so that American automobile manufacturers don't even have to deal with an income tax, right? Let's just have a corporate tax of zero or let's have no income tax on anybody, not just abolishing the corporate tax. Let's just abolish the tax. I mean, how much time do American automobile manufacturers waste complying with the tax code, right? Keeping records, filling out forms, trying to figure out ways to minimize their taxes. Let's get rid of those expenses so that automobile companies can spend all their money trying to figure out how to make better cars. Let's have them invest their money in plant and equipment and training and research and development, not in accountants and, and tax shelters or record keeping or whatever else they're doing, right? So let's get rid of these destructive taxes on production and work and savings and investment and just tax consumption, because that's the easiest thing to tax. It's the simplest thing to tax. It doesn't distort the economy. It doesn't require mountains of lawyers and accountants. It doesn't have a tremendous deadweight loss because of the cost of compliance. 
right? And it's very transparent, which is one of the reasons that politicians hate it. The most transparent tax is a sales tax that you pay when you buy something, right? I mean, and so you want taxes to be transparent because people will object to them. I mean, I want taxes as in your face as possible. So when a politician raises taxes, the taxpayers immediately see it and they know that they're the ones paying it because then uh, politicians will be less likely to pass a tax that's going to immediately hit in a very uh, you know, obvious way uh, their constituents. So we want to have all the pressure to keep taxes as low as possible. Now, this is why the politicians don't like transparent taxes. That's why you know a lot of these countries that have these uh, consumption taxes have value-added taxes. They don't have a national sales tax. They have a value-added tax because it's harder to see, right? But I mean, it's still there. It would be more transparent if it was one tax at the end instead of all these layers built in, but people still have an idea of it. But politicians are always about making it harder for the public to realize that they're being taxed because they're all about robbing Peter to pay Paul, but sometimes Paul and Peter are the same person. And they don't want uh, people getting government benefits to realize that they're paying for them, that the government is taking money from their left pocket and shoving it in their right pocket. The problem is they take out more from the pocket they take from than the pocket they put into because they charge a fee uh, for the service. So you're losing money in this transfer. You know, my dad always uh, described government aid as being a, a blood transfusion from your right arm to your left arm, and you spill half the blood on the floor. I mean, that's basically what the government is doing. So if we're going to have these type of taxes, sure, I'd love to have them to replace the current system that we have now. But if we're just going to have the income tax that we have now and have the Social Security tax and all these taxes, and we're just going to add tariffs, we are just increasing the amount of taxes that are being levied on the economy, which is a net drain for the economy. Of course, we already have all this deficit. So to the extent that the taxes reduce the deficits, then they're likely better in the long run than simply the deficits, because all the deficits simply represent future tax hikes. And the future tax hikes are going to have to be bigger than what the taxes would be today, because the deficits have interest and they, and they compound. The difference, of course, is that a lot of these deficits are going to end up being wiped out through inflation. They are going to be inflated away. We are going to be printing money instead of repaying our debt with legitimate money. Because, right, look, we can always repay, right? The federal government can always pay the debt because it can always print money. But what it can't do is repay its debt with money that has real value. In order to do that, it would have to be able to levy taxes sufficient to repay creditors without printing money. But that's impossible. The only way the federal government can repay this debt is by creating the money out of thin air. There's no other way. In fact, as interest rates rise, the only way that the federal government will be able to service the debt is using money that it creates out of thin air. So inflation is the only way to service and repay this debt. There is no honest and legitimate way. But if you are repaying debt through inflation, you're not really repaying it. Because the people who are getting the money that you create are not getting the equivalent purchasing power that they loan. So it's still a default. It's just happening through inflation. So those people who say, oh, you don't have to worry about any countries that borrow in their own currency because they're never going to default. Well, they don't have to default because they have an easier way of default, inflation. 
but the result is the same for the creditor. In fact, in many cases, it is worse. Hyperinflation, where the currency is destroyed in general, is worse for the creditor than just a restructuring that doesn't lead to a 100% default. And that is particularly true when it comes to the corporate world, because if there, you have massive inflation, corporate bondholders are also wiped out, right? It's not just the guys that own government bonds that get wiped out. When the, when the government wipes out its debt by creating inflation, it wipes out all dollar-denominated debt at the same time. Uh, so if you're uh, holding bonds of a corporation, you get wiped out. Whereas if there was a massive collapse with deflation and that corporation went bankrupt, the bondholder doesn't get wiped out. It's the stockholder that gets wiped out. The bondholder takes over the company. They own the assets of the company. The assets of the company are going to have some value, right? The bondholders become the stockholders. The stockholders got nothing, right? They're the ones that get wiped out. But in massive inflation, the bondholders get wiped out because the equity holders pay off the bondholders with a bunch of worthless money. So people who own common stocks in general, you know, are going to come out much better uh, than people who own bonds and in hyperinflation. But in real terms, in terms of gold, if you get hyperinflation, you know, it's not going to be a panacea for the equity investors because in terms of gold, right, stocks are still going to lose value. Even if they end up wiping out the bondholders in the process, it is not going to be a positive environment for holders of domestic stocks in a country where you've just had hyperinflation. But, you know, one more uh, problem, too, I wanted to get back to on the tariffs and how it would backfire is let's say you are um, a company in the U.S. and you are manufacturing cars in the U.S., whether you're a foreign manufacturer or domestic, and you're using imported uh, components, but then you re-export. I mean, we actually make cars in America and then we export them to other countries. And if there are tariffs that are going to be put on those imported um, you know, uh, parts that is going to make American exports of the finished car less competitive. So we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. We hurt our own car companies who are trying to export when we have tariffs on parts. Uh, so there are so many moving parts here that would come back and, and, and do some short-term damage. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, if you look at the history of Trump, there's a lot of grandiose statements where he talks tough about things. And then nothing actually happens. But now he came, he takes credit for something happening, even if nothing does. And he says, see, it's because I got tough, because I threatened this. Then it brought somebody to the party and we got this concession. Even if what we get as a concession is what would have been done anyway, they can always attribute it to, well, you know, I did this because, you know, Donald Trump scared me with this tough talk and, you know, his negotiating prowess. So this is probably more of that. But, you know, I wanted to finish up uh, this podcast by speaking about something political. I read about a story today that fortunately won't be a big story, but you know, it's also unfortunate that it's not going to be a big story, but for a different reason. So there was a shooting in an Oklahoma restaurant today. And the only person who died was the shooter, right? Now he did sh shoot, I think, two or three uh, people who were in the restaurant. But they didn't die. And the reason the shooter died is because there were a couple of bystanders who were outside the restaurant who heard the shots and quickly went to their car and got their own guns that they had and shot and killed the shooter before he could shoot anybody else in the restaurant. 
Now, the irony of this whole thing is that let's say these two good Samaritans uh, didn't have any guns, right? Maybe they would have heard the shots, but if they didn't have any guns in their car, they probably would have just kept on walking. I mean, they wouldn't have gone in uh, to a restaurant to confront a shooter with their bare hands. I mean, they probably didn't want to be shot. I mean, they were willing to be a hero as long as they were armed, but I don't know that they wanted to do it unarmed. Now, maybe they would have. I don't know. Uh, maybe they know uh, martial arts or something, but still not that many people want to take on an armed man when you're not armed. Um, but had those uh, individuals not been around and not had their weapons, we have no idea how many people in the restaurant would have been shot and killed by this individual. I mean, maybe it would have been a massacre. Maybe you would have killed everybody in the restaurant. Maybe the people who we wounded, he would have shot them again. They would have died. And the point is, had 10 or 20 people died in this restaurant, it would have been a huge story. It had been all over the news. And what would the consequence have been? We need to ban guns. And at the very least, we need more gun control. But you would have had a lot of people coming out saying, we need to ban guns. Guns kill. We have to outlaw guns. Well, in this case, guns didn't kill unless you count the shooter. Guns saved lives. These guns saved the lives of all the people in that restaurant who might otherwise have been shot had these other people not had guns to intervene. Now, you could argue, well, but if the shooter didn't have a gun either, well, then these other guns wouldn't have been necessary. But the problem is gun control doesn't keep guns away from criminals. It keeps guns away from honest people. That is the reality. Of course, I need to mention that in this particular case, the shooter actually had a license to carry the firearm that he used illegally, uh, attempting to murder people in that restaurant. So this is not necessarily an example of a criminal who had a gun, although clearly this individual was acting as a criminal when he entered that restaurant shooting people. But maybe he, I don't know if he has any prior uh, criminal activity, but maybe he just mentally, uh, you know, lost it. But the, the reality is that the people who had guns who were in a better frame of mind were able to use their handguns to prevent this guy uh, from going crazy and shooting people in a restaurant. Although this guy could have gone just as crazy in his automobile and ran people over with his car. I mean, if you are dead set against, you know, killing people at random, uh, you don't need a gun to do it. You could, you, you, there are a lot of things that you could do uh, to kill people. Uh, guns are just one way, but guns are a very effective way to prevent people from killing people. And in this case, that is exactly what happened. But the fact that this guy was licensed to carry that firearm also argues that, well, even if we had more gun control laws, it wouldn't have kept the gun out of the hands of this particular individual because he was licensed to have the firearm that he used to commit this crime. And, you know, if you take away all of the, you know, the, the, the media and all the liberal spin and actually look at the deaths that are attributable to guns, right? And I'm not talking about like suicide by gun. I mean, obviously, if somebody commits suicide, you know, if they have a gun, they'll probably use it right? It's pretty easy, but it doesn't mean that if they didn't have the gun, they wouldn't find some other way to kill themselves. So if somebody kills themselves uh, using a gun, it's not the gun. They're not dead because they had a gun. I mean, they would have, you know, killed themselves. They would have taken pills. They would have, you know, gotten the garage and turned on the car. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to kill yourself. You don't need a gun. And then, of course, I guess you can not count all of the 
gang violence where people are killing each other with guns because if they didn't have guns, they'd use knives or they'd use their bare hands or they, you know, gangs are going to kill each other with whatever weapons they have at their disposal. But if you just take a look at situations where a criminal kills an honest individual using a gun, right? I don't know, he breaks into his house and shoots him or he mugs him on the street or you know, somebody is killed or, you know, you get one of these school shootings or a restaurant shooting, right? If you compare that to all the incidents where somebody uses a handgun to save themselves, right? Or to save somebody else. So when the presence of a gun prevents a crime, right? Prevents somebody from getting killed. My guess would be that that happens more often than where guns are used to kill people. So probably more people are saved by guns than are killed by guns under, under those circumstances. But, you know, the media doesn't want to play these things up. And you, you think too, with all the feminists out there, because I think guns are more important to women than men, right? I mean, think about a gun. I mean, they when they first came out, right, I think they used to call the gun the great equalizer. And who needs to be equalized when it comes to strength more than a woman? I mean, you get a 300-pound guy, six foot four, 300-pound guy, you know, and you get a five foot zero, 100-pound woman. I mean, what chance does a woman have? And I know in Hollywood these days, a lot of these women, you know, know martial arts so they can kick the crap out of guys, but that's Hollywood. That's not, that's not reality. In reality, I don't care how much training, there's no way a hundred pound woman is going to pick the crap out of a 300 pound guy, right? But you give a gun to that 100 pound woman and there you go. In fact, now that guy's size is, you know, it's probably works against him. He's now a bigger target. He's probably easier to shoot, Right. Uh, and so it's it's more of a woman's issue for a woman to be able to defend herself by having access to a firearm, because that's probably the only way they should, she could do it. Otherwise, you know, she's, you know, open season. I mean, most guys could take out most women. But, you know, if they're armed, that uh, changes things dramatically. And also, you know, the fact that if you're a criminal and, you know, you're you're not sure whether your potential victim is armed. I mean, that is a deterrent in and of itself, right? I mean, the fact that victims may be armed. I mean, if a criminal is thinking about breaking into a house and he thinks that, well, maybe the homeowner has has a gun, uh, the chances are he doesn't want to break into the house if he knows somebody is home. He Maybe he'll only do it if the house is empty because most people don't want to risk getting shot. But, you know, if they if they think that the odds that the owner has a gun is slim, they're going to be more emboldened. So the, the tougher the gun control laws are, right, the, the more likely it is that honest people are unarmed, the more emboldened the criminals are who are always going to be armed. I mean, that is the irony of the gun control where they say, oh, we got to we got to ban guns as if criminals give a damn about those laws. I mean, if you're breaking into somebody's house, if you're if you're breaking the laws against robbery, right, if you're already a criminal and you're willing to break laws, then what's breaking the gun law? I mean, what's just another law that you're going to break? It's the people who don't want to break any laws at all, right, that are going to obey the gun laws. But why do we care about the people who aren't going to break any laws? I mean, we're not saving any lives by banning law-abiding citizens from owning guns. I mean, yeah, you could say, well, there's the circumstance where, you know, somebody could steal a gun from a law-abiding citizen, which is true. But I think most people who own guns take the precaution of keeping them locked up and keeping them safe, right? Uh, not that many people just leave guns lying around. So it's it's rare that 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 a gun is going to get stolen out of somebody's house. But you can't 
you know, take that possibility and say, well, then we're just going to ban guns, right? Because by banning guns, you end up with a worse situation. You end up with a situation that we didn't have today, where this gunman walks into a restaurant in Oklahoma and kills everybody because there's nobody there to stop him. Now, again, you know, somebody's going to say, well, you know, if there was laws against guns, this gunman wouldn't have had a gun. No, there's no way. You know, it's illegal to have, you know, drugs in prison, yet we have a huge drug problem in prisons. I mean, they can't, I mean, the, the, the guards, even they have these criminals in, in a jail where the criminals have no rights. They can't keep the drugs out, right? So just because the government bans something, now you don't have a lot of guns in prison, but it doesn't stop people from, you know, fashioning weapons. I mean, they still have weapons uh, that people are able to make. Uh, and once in a while, probably someone smuggles a gun in there too. But the point is that no matter how many laws you have, if you're going to try to have a free and open society or a somewhat free and open society, there is going to be no way uh, that you are going to be able to stop criminals from getting anything, least of all guns. I mean, there's so many guns that are already in the country as if the government's going to get everybody to turn these guns in if they, you know, if they pass the law requiring you to turn them in. I mean, and then there's no way to, I mean, look at all, look at the border, look at all this stuff, look at all the drugs, right, that is coming in to the border, all these illegal drugs. So how are they going to stop guns from coming in? So it's all a liberal pipe dream to just pretend that you can pass some law to outlaw guns and all the guns are going to go away. But even if all the guns go away, you know, you know, you're not, people are still going to kill people. They're going to kill people with knives. You know, they're going to kill people with cars. I talked about this and we've had now, recently, people who have gotten in their car and have just killed people. They just mowed people down in a parking lot or on the street by just deliberately driving their car into them. I mean, cars are deadly weapons. I mean, a lot of people, in fact, more people are killed every year in automobile accidents, not intentionally, but accidentally, than are shot with guns. Uh, but clearly, I mean, if you wanted to use your car as a weapon, think about all the people you could kill if you wanted to run them over with your car. I mean, I, I mean, you know, you know. I mean, there's so many people who are riding bicycles on the side of the road. I mean, sometimes I see these guys, you know, there's 20 of them, 30 of them in a row. You could just take them all out one after another, right? I mean, anybody driving a car could commit mass murder anytime they want. Now, they don't do it, but because they have the potential to do it, should we outlaw cars because some crazy person could get behind a wheel and use it as a weapon? You know, so it's the same argument with guns. But again, I, I'm going to be interested. I'm going to watch uh, the television tonight and see... You know, if the network news even 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 talks about this incident, because it is an incident where guns were used in a positive way. Right. Yes, somebody attempted to kill people with guns, but he got shot in the process by honest people who had guns. And this could have been a much different story. And if it was a much different story with lots of people killed, right, it would have gotten all kinds of media attention. But ironically, they would have said, you see, we need more. We need more gun laws. But it was the honest gun holder that is the reason that this is not a bigger story and can now not be used by the anti-gun lobby to try to argue for stricter gun control or outright bans. Anyway, everybody have a great holiday weekend, uh, Memorial Day, and I will be uh, back again next week sometime with more podcasts. Oh, 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 oh,